12 years ago. That's how long it's been since American Idol, the te- television show, first aired. And since then, it's been taking the nation by storm. People have been glued to their seats, or at least they tell me. I'm not really into the show, but uh, people cast their votes. And they connect with the lives of people who put their talents on display, hoping, praying to be discovered and found. Apparently, our aptitude, our, our, our desire for this type of show is so great in our nation and throughout the world that there have been spin-offs. America's Got Talent. Britain's Got Talent. I I think a lot of nations actually have something got talent. Um, the Voice, Dancing with the Stars, America's Next Top Model, the list goes on and on, and I think so does the quality goes down and down. But anyhow, uh, there's, I think there's something positive to be said about this type of show, this type of hunger at least. I think there's an appreciation for greatness. Uh, the greatness we see in others is maybe a, a, a glimpse perhaps of what it might mean to be made in God's image. That's probably a stretch. Uh, And many of us grew up with healthy role models. We may have called them our idols. They could have been sports stars or or characters in a book or television show. Could have been someone in your life, in your family, a teacher. Uh, We don't call them idols in the sense of religiously worshipping them. Uh, But there's something about that person or people in your life, a quality, a skill, a lifestyle, something we wanted to emulate. Think about that a minute. What were some of your idols as a young person? In fact, take a, take a moment and share with one or two people just who was an idol. Who is someone you looked up to? It could have been a family member, a fictitious character. Uh, Obi-Wan for me was, was a big one. Yeah. yeah. Anybody? You got Chad. Wasn't a doctor? <laughs> Really? I suppose if there's any, maybe something What's his name? Richard Feynman. Feynman? Yeah. I'm throwing that out. He also ended up being the investigation of the challenger. But amazing what he says. Okay. Got his break drum. Okay. Right. I'll stick with Obi Wan. <laughs> so I stuck with uh, Obi Wan Kenobi, and Chad. Chad's idol was uh, uh, some physicist, Dick Feynman. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Shows you the. the difference. What, what were some of the other ones that you guys brought up? Some idols. Who, who is it? Oh, you, yeah. Anybody else? Billy Idol. Billy, oh, Billy Idol, right. Of course, Eric, yes. Anybody else? What was someone else you looked up to? Griffey. Griffey. Absolutely, absolutely. Michael Knight. He's still big in Japan. Hasselhoff. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Our, our idols could be people uh, we looked up to as motivators, healthy motivators, um, models for us, uh, mentors at a distance. Uh, maybe you wanted to swing the bat like Ken Griffey Jr. or uh, sing like Adele, which uh, there's two Adeles here. You know, it could be like you. Um, yeah. Or maybe uh, play guitar like Jimmy Page. Hope I'm not dating myself too much, but you know, he's awesome. Uh, in the spiritual life, there have been seasons throughout history where uh, the 
saints had almost their own baseball cards, like saint cards. There were these little pamphlets that you could get. So you might be really into Julian of Norwich uh, and, uh, and her devotion to God, or maybe the largeness of soul of St. Francis. So you get your little St. Francis booklet and you read all about him. And as a, as a young person in catechism or something, you're looking up to that person. Uh, St. Teresa for her, her inner traveling and, and connecting this with God. Or St. Ignatius and his discipline and, and his intentionality in growing in Christ. Um, idols of the spiritual sort. You can also make an idol, of course, out of an ideal. Like wealth, and you can give all you have to acquire it. Um, you can make an idol out of your security over adventure, academics, simply being the best in whatever it is you're doing. When I was a kid, I had a neighbor who was my age, and his father immigrated from Yugoslavia. He was a professional soccer player there uh, before some of the uh, civil unrest. And this kid was my age, but even at eight or nine, when I'm watching Saturday morning cartoons, he's out doing laps around our housing development, kicking the ball in the rain or the shine or the snow, training. And... I think he made it to some maybe second or third tier small European club at some point in his late teens. But uh, he does construction now, never really made a career out of soccer. And I look back on that and I wonder, I wonder, was he chasing the goal or was the goal chasing him? Was he motivated to do all those things at eight years old or was he responding to some kind of external pressure to do those things? That's kind of the way it is with the things of the world. Work is a good thing. Genesis 2 tells us we're created for good work. Pleasure is a gift of God. Comfort, beauty, relationships, religion, wealth. These can be all great things. Great tools for our life. But they are all horrible masters of our life. This evening we're going to look at a story of an encounter that Jesus had with a young man who was struggling with that nuance between having a gift and being a slave to that gift. As we explore this story together, I want to encourage you to ask yourself, what might Jesus be saying to you? Because we're in a gospel and we're telling a gospel story, you can assume that Jesus wants to speak to us through that story, just like he did so long ago when it was first recorded. Please stand with me as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 13 through 30. Then some children were brought to him so they, he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what's good? There's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Well, then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and while you're at it, love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept since my youth. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go. And sell your possessions and give to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Who then can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Lord, uh, you are messing with our money and the way we think about our security. The things in this world we hold very dear. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for being loving enough to meddle in the things that might block us from fully following you. Help us, Lord. We sense our defenses going up even now. Help us, Lord, to be open to your firm but gentle voice. Help us to believe that what you have to say to us leads to more abundance and to eternal life. Amen. You may be seated. We're just hitting all the light topics, aren't we? Last week, we looked at marriage and divorce and different ways of conceiving uh, our life as celibate singles, if that's the case that we are in. We now pick up the story with Jesus having uh, three verses about Jesus interacting with children, and we're going to come back to that later on in the message. But the meat of this passage is an encounter with the so-called rich young ruler, and Jesus' discussion with him that follows in his disciples. For the sake of this sermon, and for all of those who like to follow along and take notes, this is for you. Um, I have three thematic breaks that I see in this passage. So I'm going to go through three main points. So if you are ready to write, here's the first one. First, Jesus makes a point about the very real dangers of wealth. Okay? You could write, Jesus says wealth is really dangerous. Okay? Jesus talks about wealth and its lure almost more than anything else besides the kingdom of God and judgment. In our story, we're introduced to a man, and Luke's gospel tells us that he was young, who was very wealthy. In first century Mediterranean culture, you didn't just get wealthy by starting an internet startup or by creating a brand new product and selling it to lots of people. 
The way that wealth was uh, conceived of and passed down in the first, uh, first century was through families. So you'd have a family that had an estate and they would employ people on their land and they would have political sway and people would owe them more favors than they would owe the people. And there was a power differential. And the way that this wealth was passed down was through good stewardship through the sons of the family. So every boy that was born into that wealthy family would be groomed to be little lords, little stewards of their land, of their estate. By the world standards, of course, most of us are very wealthy. We typically, as I look around this room, have food uh, to eat. We typically don't concern ourselves with where we're going to eat tomorrow. For some of us, that might be true some of the time. For the most part, uh, in fact, Bellingham has voted one of the best small cities in the country to be homeless. There is food available if you want food. If you rent an apartment or a home and you don't need to share it with more than a couple roommates or extended family, you are in the upper crust wealthy in the world. If you have enough disposable income uh, to spend on entertainment once in a while, travel, you have more money than the vast majority of the world. And if you own a home, or paying the mortgage on a home like we are, uh, we are in the top 5% wealthiest people on the planet. Now, as we read the story of this young man, we may easily identify with parts of his situation. He's used to getting the things he needed when he needed them. So, he goes to Jesus, and he asks what he must do to obtain, or literally, here's how you could translate that word, grasp, secure, collect, possess. He asks Jesus, how may I possess, get, grasp eternal life? He's got land, he's got an estate, maybe he's got the latest German-engineered sports camel, he's got everything he needs, and now he wants to add eternal life to his collection. So Jesus mentions some of the Ten Commandments, part of the Great Commandment, to love neighbor as self. To which the man replied, I've done all these things since I was a little kid. Now Jesus knows somehow, you know how he is, he sees into his heart, and he knows that this young man is not fully free. In fact, Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus looked on him and had a love for him. So looking at him, Jesus felt love for him and said, one thing you lack, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. Amazing! Jesus heard the man's claims to follow some commandments, and yet Jesus was able to look into his heart and see that he wasn't yet fully committed. There was something holding him back, and the way I just conceive this of my mind is just this, like this black hand inside of his body, gripping onto his heart like a cancer or something, just this evil covetousness holding him back from being fully heartfelt committed to Jesus, his lust for wealth. This young man went away grieving because he owned much property. Of course, nobody was ever sad in the world that I live in because they owned much property. I think he was sad because he realized his property owned him. him. He was unable to give it up. 
Now this is not the first time that Jesus has warned us about wealth in Matthew's Gospel. He warned us in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter five or chapter 6. And He warned us in the parable of the four soils in chapter 13. Jesus brings up this topic of wealth frequently because it frequently stands in the way of people following Him. I want to make one thing real clear. This is not about money. This is not about things. Because money and things are actually neutral items. They are tools that can be used for good or evil. What Jesus is warning us about is the lure of wealth equaling security. Of wealth equaling independence, autonomy, a life that I can get by without God. Wealth equals the freedom we feel when we can afford what we want, when we want, rather than the freedom we have in Christ from being slaves to our properties and our toys. And the danger of storing up treasure on earth, which is fleeting and temporary, when we could be investing in the wealth uh, we have in others' lives, is the same as investing in heaven. And when we invest in other people's lives and the things of God, it's, it's investing in a place that cannot be taken from us and lasts forever. Ultimately, Jesus does not simply command this man to give up his dependence on wealth and become poor. He commands him to sell his stuff. Notice, sell it, not give it away. Sell it. Then give the proceeds to the poor to obtain... So it's not just for free. He gets to do that, then obtain a treasure in heaven and then follow Jesus. That is really gospel good news. Jesus is offering freedom from this man's bondage. He's not saying, if you want to follow me, it's going to be horrible. You have to give up everything good in your life and be sad. He's saying, I am offering you new life, treasure in heaven, which is far out, uh, uh, exceeds what you have on earth, and you get to follow me. See, the equation is like this. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will gain treasure in heaven and gain Jesus Himself. Now, if that sounds like a good proposition to you, rejoice. Your heart is in a good place. If that sounds like a naive sales pitch that some preacher is giving you right now, know this. Jesus looks at you and me, because I struggle with it too. And He looks at us with a love for us. And He's probably speaking to us right now about something. Because He loves us. So does this mean that everyone should sell everything, give their money to the poor, and be poor? Not necessarily. After all, we know that wealthy women supported the ministry of Jesus and His disciples. They were able to have the character to wield their wealth and their possessions in a way that would be a blessing to the kingdom. Joseph of Arimathea was wealthy and influential. He took a personal risk in using and leveraging that wealth and influence to talk to Pontius Pilate and 
get the body of Jesus so he could care for it properly. We know that in the first century, especially the Roman and the Greek churches, uh, wealthy homeowners were often the hosts of the first and second century house churches, which we'll get to learn more about this winter as we dive into 1 Corinthians together. We know that Paul, the apostle, taught people to tithe and give to the poor and care for the widows and the needy. Things that would be impossible for us to do if we had given everything away, or every one of us had given everything away. For those with families to support, like Paul, or like Jesus had just talked about with uh, marriage and that being a lifelong commitment and including all of those cultural trappings of providing for a family, those things would be impossible if you came home one day and you said, uh, hey honey, guess what? I sold everything. We're living on the streets, but aren't we spiritual? That actually be grounds for divorce. This is not a blanket statement about selling all that we have. But it is a firm warning to us. How much is enough? Yeah, I've got to provide for my family. But what does provide mean? What, what is my standard of provision? How many trips does that include? How much eating out does that equate to? Or is it a matter of austerity? Or is it a matter of hospitality? I mean, these are questions I think that um, I'm not going to dictate to you because I'm wrestling with them. And I, I think if we're true to this scripture, we're true to actually following Jesus and not following a pastor or not following some other theologian or teacher, we need to wrestle with Jesus. Because I think His word to us is nuanced for our season in life, our station in life, for what He's called you to do, for who He's called you to be. But we cannot wiggle out of the fact that he thinks this wealth issue is such a matter of the heart that can trip up so many people. He talks about it all the time, especially in Luke's Gospel. What is the appropriate tension between enjoying God's gracious gifts of food and wine and beauty and creation and being rooted in a home and a place on the one hand, the scriptures support all of those things, and living for food and wine and beauty and enjoying creation and building our little kingdoms and our homes and our properties on the other hand. It's such a slight nuance, such a slight attitude, perspective from turning one into living abundant life in God's graciousness and being selfish, building walls between us and God. Where are you at with that? Okay, note takers, second main point. This is not just about the idol of wealth. Ooh, it's about idolatry in general. Okay? So if you're like sitting there and thinking, I don't have any money, this isn't good for me, this is not affecting me, or I'm, I'm just so, this isn't, you know, a generous, this isn't affecting me, well guess what, you're about to get affected. So this man asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus tells him, keep the commandments, which is of course shorthand for at least the Ten Commandments. Uh, the man asks him which ones, and Jesus gives an interesting answer. He gives him five out of the Ten Commandments, and he gives him half of the Great Commandment. When I say the Great Commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus gives him the love your neighbor part. 
Now, oftentimes, Jewish teachers would quote part of a scripture, and it would intend, you know, the student would know he means all of the scripture that I'm quoting from. But he does this interesting in the Ten Commandments. You think if Jesus was using that technique, he would start with maybe the first commandment. You should have no other gods but me. You know, love the Lord. Have no other gods but me. And all of those ones about God. About no idolatry. About Sabbath keeping. But he doesn't start there. He starts with the commandments. About how we treat one another. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. Etc. Etc. What Jesus leaves out are the foundations. He leaves out all the commands about how we relate to God. Have no other gods before me. Have no idols. Keep the Sabbath. And the tenth commandment he left out as well. Do not covet. It's almost as if by leaving those out, he's highlighting them. Because if you were a a young Jewish man who was as pious as this man was, obviously he knew his commandments and he was keeping them. By 13, you've basically got the Torah memorized. It was part of an early uh, first century bar mitzvah. So he would know his Ten Commandments. He would know that Jesus listed and left out all of the important ones or the, the, the primary ones. And I think now we get to the heart of this encounter. Jesus knows that this man has an idolatry problem. And contrary to what we might think on the surface, his idolatry problem is not primarily with his wealth. Let me explain. First of all, notice how he addresses Jesus. He calls him teacher. And if maybe you've picked up on this, but every time somebody calls Jesus teacher when they address him in Matthew's Gospel, that's a bad sign. Okay? Because of course Jesus is a teacher. But Matthew knows and, and wants us to know that he's so much more than that, right? He's the Lord, he's the King, he's Emmanuel, God with us. So when people just call him teacher, they don't fully recognize his lordship. Right? The young man asks, what good thing, one, singular, what good thing must I do to get? eternal life. Did you catch it? How presumptuous that he thinks he can do anything good without God's help. That it will just take one good thing, like a a big charitable donation to get eternal life. And how presumptuous to think that eternal life is something you can just get, like going to the store, making a big purchase and putting it on your shelf. So Jesus sees where this uh, is going and he raises the question, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter eternal life. Let me turn that fan off. Thanks. Uh, if you wish to enter eternal life. Eternal life is not something you get. It's not something you possess or own. Eternal life is something you enter into. You can't add it to your collection of trophies and accomplishments and achievements. You enter it. And you walk it out. You live it. You can't own it. So this man's idolatry, I believe, is not his wealth. It's his self-righteousness. It's the belief that he can do something in his own strength... To obtain eternal life. That's the American Idol, right? Studies have shown that Generation X, supposedly these 
Generation X, that's me, and Generation Y, that's the generation younger than me, that we're less materialistic than those who went before us. I think that's a lie. And I think the older we get, the more that's going to prove that that's a lie. Uh, But anyway, it says that these two generations, my generation X and the millennial generation, are more interested in freedom to travel, autonomy, fun, group status over individual status. I kind of see that. Uh, So to put it in some short quips, uh, supposedly these two generations appreciate experiences over products, which I kind of like that. We'd much rather take the kids on a, on a trip than to buy more toys. I, I, that's us. Um, the um, <clears throat> life over life insurance, we kind of live in the now more than the tomorrow. Uh, but still, no matter what generation you're in, we have the same problem of seeking after independence and freedom and autonomy from being told what to do, how to do it, from being dependent on other people. You have to appreciate that in the ancient Jewish world, if a person kept the commandments, was a regular attender of synagogue, made their sacrifices in the temple, had wealth, they were viewed as the prototypical Jew. They were viewed as blessed by God like no other. And the disciples were no different. So they were astonished when Jesus said, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel, the largest domesticated animal in their world, to enter through the eye of a needle. It's easier for that to happen than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Notice the disciples' response. If he couldn't enter the kingdom, who can? This was the guy. If you were a young, or if you were to ask a young male, genuine first century follower of God, who they hoped to be like one day, if I had to ask them, who was your idol when you were a kid, they would probably describe someone just like the rich young ruler. This guy would have won... Israeli idol, if that was a show back then. I mean, he was it. He was wealthy, but he was pious. He kept the commandments. He wasn't in the tabloids. He was in the synagogue. He wasn't a thief. He probably paid his tithes and made regular donations to the poor out of his surplus. He was upright. He was blessed. He was the man. There's something that gives this man away. Jesus tells him to obey the commands and he replies, I've kept all these things since my youth. What am I still lacking? Did you catch that question? What am I still lacking? I imagine his thought process. I've kept the rules. Everyone thinks I'm blessed. I'm the definition of a good guy. Religious guy. But what am I still lacking? The great Apostle Paul, like this man in one sense, had done all the right things, followed all the laws as Joe read uh, from uh, the book of Philippians earlier. And yet, when Jesus reached out to Paul, and Paul realized who Jesus was and what following him meant, he said all of that other stuff, the status the rule following, the being perfect and following the law, all of that stuff is rubbish compared to my relationship with Jesus. 
Hear the young man's question. What am I still lacking? Why do you ask a question like that if you're already keeping the law and the commandments? Why do you think you're lacking anything if you're already wealthy and everyone's telling you, Hey man, you're blessed by God. I wish I was like you. I think what he's lacking is assurance. There's something deep inside of him uh, that, that no amount of financial security or pats on the back or great friends or family system, none of that can equate to. Hans Urs von Balthasar writes, Man is a creature with a mystery in his heart bigger than himself. It is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Just as it is impossible for anyone who puts anything before following Jesus to enter the kingdom of heaven. Which means that it is impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven. I know, I was supposed to be preaching good news, right? Well, here it comes. But God says, through Jesus, all things are possible. Amen? Right? Right? So if you've been trying to follow along, the first point, I believe, is that Jesus is trying to warn us about the lure of wealth. That's for every person. That's always going to be a problem for our human nature. Second, Jesus is warning us about the idolatry of self-sufficiency. Third, I believe Jesus is giving us a vision for how to live a life in the kingdom. A life of true shalom, true peace, here and now. Peter declares, flabbergasted I assume after he's heard this, we've left everything for you. Remember when Jesus met these fishermen? They're mending their nets. He walks by, hey, come follow me. They leave. They leave family business, boats on the shore, the nets. They leave. What then will there be for us? It's a fair question. Notice how how Jesus doesn't respond. He doesn't say, you selfish disciple. You don't follow me for what you can get out of it. What kind of question is that? Jesus does not do that. You know in the Sermon on the Mount, you should read it again sometime. You should read it every week. In the Sermon on the Mount, notice how many times Jesus talks about rewards. I I think we've got something kind of wrong in our culture. How we, we, we believe in this ideal of altruism. How we're just supposed to be nice and good and loving without anything in return. I don't even think that's what God wants. I don't know where we got that idea. Jesus says, hey, follow me. It's a better investment than what you're investing in now. There's great rewards for you, actually. Um, the, the parable in, in um, chapter 13 about the treasure, you know. The guy sells everything he has so he can get the treasure. He gets a treasure out of it. I mean, he doesn't like, get nothing. And, and so Jesus is saying, follow me. Give up on trying to control your life with worldly wealth. You're going to get so much more. You're going to get treasure in me, treasure in heaven. You know, sometimes I think the message out there is just live with a small footprint. And I, I'm totally for like low carbon footprint. I know what that's talking about. But just it's almost like this tiptoe around life and then die someplace 
quietly. Like, don't make an impact. I don't see that in the gospel at all. I see... Give up your own trying to seek after your own control through your material possessions and through your autonomy. Invest that in following Jesus and blessing everybody else. And live big. Live out loud. I'm not... Have a life that makes an impact. Leave an impact for the kingdom. Right? What Jesus is saying is when you give up looking after yourself and start trusting in Him, you're going to find your life. And that life you find is abundant life. Everyone who has left houses, or brother, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or land, and estates for my sake will receive many times as much, and will inherit eternal life. Mark is really clear on this. Many times as much in this life, and eternal life. Now this is not prosperity doctrine as it's understood in bad theology where the gospel is equated to big houses and lots of ATVs or nice cars or whatever it is you... I don't know. Um, It's not about that. But what I do believe Jesus is saying is that when you and I begin to loosen our grip on our things so that we can more fully trust in Jesus, then we are more willing to share those things and to share our life with those around us. And something happens when you are shared with. It breaks down a wall. uh, And it allows you to be more vulnerable. And when you are shared with, it makes you more willing to share with other people. As they have need. By the way, I think that's why Matthew puts those three verses about childlike faith in the beginning of this passage. He already covered the whole childlike faith thing in the beginning of chapter 18 in, in, in length. But he adds it here as a reminder... That following Jesus, being part of the kingdom is like being a child. It's what children do. They have no claim to grab hold of their parents' love. They have no claim on the house that they live in or the car they drive. They have to look to their caregivers to provide a good and healthy home. And when children are in a good environment, they don't have to worry that they're going to be cared for or loved. I believe when we practice generosity toward one another, as we trust Jesus, it melts the hearts of other people. And they begin to see that it's not just them against the world. And it, begins, it allows them to let their guard down a little bit more. They begin to trust, which in turn allow them to be more generous in trusting Jesus. And little by little, the kingdom of heaven breaks into my heart, and into your heart, and into our families, and into our churches, and into our communities, and into our nations, and it spreads throughout the world a little bit at a time of shalom of the kingdom of heaven breaking in, just as Jesus declares. I find it amazingly dignifying and frightening that it appears to me at this point in my theological development that God not only has a plan to rescue the world and bring shalom, but He's designed it in such a way that until He returns at least, it's dependent on your obedience and mine. That's how He chooses to get things done, is by us responding to Him. Incredibly dignifying. Incredibly weighty. How might Jesus be speaking to you today? Has He revealed an idol that is holding you back? 
from following more fully. Receive the good news. Through faith in Jesus, the impossibility of entering the kingdom of God has been made possible. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you do not steer away um, from these heavy topics. I often think of what would happen if a guy like that came up to me and how I would so quickly want to steer him to tell him about your love and your graciousness and just, come on, just... It's not hard to follow Jesus and you don't do that. You see beyond what we can see into the heart and you don't, you don't leave um, partially healed alone. You go for the full healing. And you point out by your grace those areas in our lives that prevent us uh, from embracing you more fully and trusting you more fully. Help us, Lord. Help us as you've pointed things out today. Help us not to rationalize them away. To entertain ourselves and distract ourselves so that we don't have to think about it. Help us by your grace, Lord, to become healthier, to become more whole, to become more trusting in you. Amen.